The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. Wealth is not a pie. Wealth is an ocean. Back up your truck to the ocean and fill it full of water and then take your share home. It's not a pie where if I take too big a piece, you don't have very much. That's the capitalist system. You know what the pie system is? Marxism, socialism, and communism. That's where you get the pie. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the place where you can breach the fault lines between East and West, where you and I have a conversation, conversation about those areas, those issues, which few really have the temerity, the the courage to touch, and uh, ultimately because of political correctness, because of fear, because of uh, some type of paralysis, end up ignoring the very issues that I think are some of the most significant, if not the most significant, national security issue of the day, which is, can the faith of Islam, can Muslims and their interpretations of Islam come to terms with modernity? Can they breach that chasm between East and West, that chasm between modernity and theocracy? And in this program, week to week, you and I breach that. You and I find those areas that are open to reform, are not, and discuss examples where if the media, academics, think tanks, interfaith organizations, and most importantly, all of you, whoever you may be interested in Islamic reform, if you looked at it through a different lens, what is that lens? That lens of Islamic reform, that lens of modernity, of an American version of Islam, that pushes back against any concept of the Islamic State. Set aside all the noise in Washington, all the discussions, collusion, no collusion, all that nonsense, which is a never-ending whirlpool of, a, of an abyss of nonsense. And let's look at the reality. Yes, we've talked about Iran. We've talked about Syria. This week, I want to use, yes, another godforsaken, horrific attack on innocent citizens and Toronto, Canada, and this time, I I think what is extraordinarily educational is that this attack happened on Sunday. You had now a a dead 10-year-old girl and a university student, two dead, with a gunman who opened fire around 10 p.m. last Sunday. He shot 15 people exchanged gunfire with police before dying of a gunshot wound. The 18-year-old victim, Reese Fallon, was identified the next day. The police and local news said that the devastated family is asking for privacy. Now, Toronto police received a call saying that a man was shooting at people in a Toronto East End Greek town neighborhood. They then, after he had committed the shootings, dropped his weapon. They found him on a street later on, and the 
Special Investigations Unit say shots were exchanged between him and the two officers, and the man ran back, and the man ran back to Danforth, where he was found dead on a sidewalk. It was a very rapid and fluid event. Sergeants discussed it at the press conference, but they never said his name. They said they had no idea what the motivation is. And basically, part of it, I think, is because the suspect was dead. It didn't seem to matter to get to the facts. As if... As if... Terror cells are only about one shooter. Nothing about ideology. Five injured victims were transported to St. Michael Hospital. Acting Medical Director of Trauma, Dr. Najma Ahmed, said... Three of them immediately received life-saving surgery, so there could have been three or five more dead, but all five were listed in serious condition within 24 to 48 hours. Multiple witnesses said they heard anywhere between a dozen and 20 shots. They believe he fired at least 30. Other witnesses described complete chaos as the suspect rapidly fired his gun. So naturally, the discussion was all about Gun issues, how did a, a crazed man get it? And then they talked about mental health. And then three days later, ladies and gentlemen, three days later, his name was released. Faisal Hussein of Toronto. Faisal Hussein. And still, the family statement said that they have no idea how this happened. They're at a terrible loss for words, but we must speak out to express our deepest condolences to the families who are now suffering on account of our son's horrific actions. And then they said, our son had severe mental health challenges, struggling with psychosis and depression his entire life. The interventions of professionals were unsuccessful. So, listen, there's no doubt, just as militants who adhere to jihadism and Salafi jihadism, might be radicalized by imams in prison or elsewhere. Ultimately, the vulnerable population, those who are susceptible to being radicalized, are going to have a starting point that puts them much weaker than all the rest. All the rest of who? All the rest of the Islamists who believe in looking at the lens of, of the world through a theocratic mindset. So, is that lens, is that point of weakness having a sense of inferiority? Is it a sense of seeking redemption? Is it a sense of near suicidality in which they want to end their life but go out in fame or go out in a sense of finding heaven? 72 versions as Al-Qaeda barbarically calls it. Is it one of those? Ultimately, mental health often will play a role. But the pathological minimization this week of the fact that this was a Muslim. And then later it turns out he had been adherent to the Islamic State. He had expressed these things online and we are still trying to piece together what some of the details are about what his ideology was. And yet they were so far ahead of the story making his psychiatric issue number one that the connection of radicalization and the ideology of militarization and the continued spreading of ISIS, Islamic State ideology, has been but a blip of the discussion of the story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the pathology. 
Yeah, you know, I do talk week to week about how how frustrated I am with the fact that all we ever talk about reform is for a few days after a terror incident. So if his name had been released immediately and they had known immediately that he was pledging allegiance to ISIS as he had done apparently, Faisal Hussein, for three or four days you might have had a more appropriate conversation, but then it would have died off anyway. So what does it matter? Well, if our country, if Canada, if the United States, if the West needs a 12-step program of denial, of dealing with it, with its addiction to political correctness, so even with a Trump presidency, even with the changes, Justin Trudeau came out with a statement within 24 hours talking about protecting the community, mental illness, etc. And there's been no national acknowledgement in Canada that I can find about his allegiance to ISIS. Ladies and gentlemen, I talk about the Muslim communities needing a 12-step program. I talk about the reform that has never happened. Our countries need a 12-step program. And you don't think we can muster the maturity of addressing the pathology not only with its components of psychiatric illness, but it's also significant ideological components, components of anti-Westernism, anti-Semitism, pro-militant Islamism, a belief in a Sharia state, Sharia law, and a hate for the country in which they live in the West. If that didn't play a role, this kid may have gotten, this man may have gotten therapy, and it may not have been working. But often militant Islamism doesn't have treatment, doesn't have success when all you do is approach it with a psychiatrist who's trying to find out where in his childhood he went wrong, when in fact his primary pathology is a hate for America. His primary pathology is fascism, is bigotry that needs to be treated. When we come back, we'll talk about that treatment, what should have been done. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. Israel fired missiles at two Syrian missile sites. Within minutes, Israel has shot down a Russian-made Syrian fighter jet after it penetrated into Israeli airspace. The next war in the Middle East. Is this it? Iran, Syria, and Russia are showing that they are an Axis power. The question is, how big will this get? Can anyone keep it under control? The Glenn Beck Program. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about Faisal Hussein. We're talking about does the faith of a shooter matter? Constantly the Las Vegas shooting comes up. It came up in the stories last week about Faisal Hussein in which the parents and many of the commentators and the CBC networks and others said 
Well, even, you know, look at Las Vegas, we never still don't know what the ideology is. And we, we likely maybe never will. So that must be what happened with Faisal. So here you have a Muslim who becomes armed and shoots up people, similar to jihadist attacks. And the default is that he was psychiatrically ill, even though he cited allegiance to ISIS, even though he was a militant. There's a problem there. There's a disease that, no, we don't want to generalize that on Muslims. We don't want to impart that. But actually, by suppressing the conversation, by deflecting it to a topic that 99% of people will roll their eyes to the back of their head and say this is missing the obvious point, enables a prevention of the first step, which is admitting that you were in denial. So the 12-step process needs to begin, or the bigotry will worsen, actually. Because the only thing that makes bigotry and stereotypes worse is a lack of addressing the truth. So therefore, conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories will persist, will grow. And actually the belief that there must be a cover-up happening on the reality of militant Islam then actually feeds the fuel that the problem is so big nobody wants to talk about it. So you have a vicious circle. So please, for the love of God, mention his faith right away and let Muslims stand up, not only condemn the act, but say, you know what, we have a problem, we need to deal with it, we need your help, we need your love to do that. We need a tough love to address the militancy that's coming out of the mosques. The mosques should have been addressed, and so many of the folks that we follow on Twitter, immediately after this attack, said, why aren't we talking about which mosques he went to? What made him lean? Let's talk about a public conversation. Why aren't we talking about what was the ideology printed and published and spoken by his family, by his connections, by his communities? What was some of the ideology that took this perhaps psychologically weak and pathological individual and made him an ISIS adherent? We talk about the gun, but why do the vast majority of homes with guns not end up killing anybody there's a psychiatric illness that leads to the use of that gun so what was the bullet and the method of murder here is not only the weapon he used be it a vehicular jihad be it chemical acid be it a bomb a pressure cooker a gun the method of murder was ideological Something tipped and made that Faisal Hussein into a weapon, a human deranged weapon that became a soldier, a jihadi soldier of ISIS. And the same is true for women that join and accept becoming slavery, becoming slaves into slavery in Syria, and then come out, some of them, reporting horrors that they get subjected to. What makes them become radicalized? This is not only... Men that are radicalized. We see women radicalized into a culture of subservience that is horrific. And we as Americans, across party lines, across minority lines, should be speaking out against this. Because the battle being waged on the streets of Toronto, on the streets of Phoenix, New York, London, is but a microcosm of the global battle happening between the theocrats, 
with the tanks in Iran that were running the governments and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, that were are running the government in Turkey and the AKP. So the Islamists versus Muslims that reject Islamic governance. I ended last segment talking about treatment. How do we treat this individual? Should he even treat it differently other than just going to a psychiatrist? Now, I'm a physician. I deal daily with patients that have psychological, psychiatric, social, familial, counseling needs, therapeutic needs that are often not only related to personal therapy, therapeutic interventions with need for deep psychoanalysis and also medication therapy. Obviously, the specialists on primary care, the specialists in this are psychiatrists. One of the debates going on is, should there be a tailoring of ideology to the treatment of psychiatric illness? Now, the hyper-secular society would say that no, any psychiatrist should be able to treat any pathology that arises in a human being based on a DSM-4, now 5, criteria, which is a list of certain psychiatric diagnoses, and that can be treated separate from their own ingrained cultural religious ideology. Maybe such a cultural political religious ideology. And then they would separate out, and if you ask psychiatrists, was Hitler psychotic? Was Stalin, Putin, Erdogan, are these people psychiatrically ill? Dictators, thugs, fascists, Assad. Is genocidal Assad? Bashar Assad and his father Hafiz, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, these these dictators who have a thirst for murder and, and, and pillaging towns. Is that a psychiatric or ideological illness? We could have a long debate about this. I've wanted to, uh, and thought about writing a book about it. I think it's a very important thing because ultimately there's no doubt that there's probably a little bit of both. You've got personality disorders that include narcissistic personality disorders that have a spectrum. You've got antisocial personality disorders that then become the Jeffrey Dahmers and other characters that have been seen in American history, in Western history, and societal history that are mass murderers. And they're considered antisocial personality disorders. But do they have a psychiatric illness also in addition to antisocial personality disorder, which is a axis 2 versus axis 1, which is primary psychiatric disorder? I say all this because you can't ever get to the core treatment of ideology unless you recognize that a belief system, once you adhere to it, creates systemic and personal pathologies that override underlying traits and can make them then diagnosable. So therefore, the nuances of a personal pathology, I think, are trumped, are are overridden by a psychosis, or simply a fascist ideology. So the purges and the pogroms that happened in the times of the Soviets in which millions died and were slaughtered by the Soviet government, 
Were all of those that perpetrated it Axis One psychiatrically ill people? Or simply were they fascists who dehumanized their enemies and thus, at the end of the day, were evil? And I don't care if you give it a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder or you just say fascists that are evil, that just like ISIS is evil, the Khomeinists are evil. Some use God, some reject God. At the end of the day, they dehumanize other humans and they are not only the scum of the earth, they have an ideology that threatens the way of, the, the, the way of existence. So I would tell you, if you are going to treat this problem, the individual granular effects of what happened in the mind of Faisal Hussein might matter a little bit, but at the end of the day, every one of you listening to this podcast, the people on the streets of Iran are going to defeat the community psychosis of the Islamic Supreme Council of Iran. The people on the streets, the women, the minorities, the Baha'is, the, the atheists, the secularists, the moderate Muslims that believe in secular separation of mosque and state that reject Islamism are going to defeat the Islamo-fascist theology of the Khomeinists and other theocrats, be it the majority Khomeinists or the Shirazi minorities, whatever the Islamists are, the, the Salafi jihadis of the Sunni side, the Shia Sharia uh, uh, promoters of theocracy of Khomeinists and Hezbollah and Shirazis and others at the end of the day it doesn't matter they're theocrats they will use their own interpretations of law to kill their enemies, to dehumanize their enemies, use chemical weapons, use whatever necessary to put out, extinguish the light of freedom. So you need to have a conversation about both. I believe when you're talking about a bigger problem, this isn't just when Faisal Hussein, there was the San Bernardino ISIS adherents. There was the Boston bombers. There was... Nidal Hassan before them. There was on and on examples of whack-a-mole concoctions of human waste of human beings that became barbarians following a cultish mass movement that has as a constituency right now 3-5% to 5 of the world's Muslim population which could be 50 million people. Now, the main constituency for that militant is political Islamist groups, Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, AKP, the Party of Freedom and Justice Development in Turkey, with millions of adherents. So we have to counter that ideology. And you've been tested, ladies and gentlemen. We were tested this week in Toronto, and we failed miserably. As Tariq Fatah tweeted out, he said to the Canadian media, are you mentally ill? To ignore the name of this and wait till the story basically dies down and then release it and then still persist in saying that his adherence and allegiance to ISIS has no relevance. Are you mentally ill? He may have had some mental illness, but the refusal of Western society to deal with pathologies growing and festering in their own land is an illness. 
that needs a 12-step program. This is Udi Jasser. We'll be right back on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. There is a culture at CNN that demands you be disrespectful to Donald Trump. I talked to a CNN person this week and I said, can you name one person on your network, one in a position of visibility, anchor, high-profile reporter, who's even moderate toward Donald Trump? And there was silence. There is not anyone, not one human being working for the corporation that is even moderate to the man. The culture is get him. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. While we're talking about terrorists, while we're talking about militants, this week a federal judge in the United States ruled against, against stripping away the U.S. citizenship of a convicted terrorist tied to a plot. We talked about this a few years back. Tied to a plot to destroy the Brooklyn Bridge citing a lack of evidence to prove that the status had been granted based on misrepresentations. So the stripping of a citizenship, apparently according to this judge, is based on whether he misrepresented what he said at the time. If what he wrote on the piece of paper was true, we don't strip the citizenship of folks who declare war on the United States. Ayman Ferris, 49 years old, was sentenced in 2003 for aiding and abetting Al-Qaeda by scoping out the iconic New York Bridge as part of a plot to cut through the cable supporting structure. He met with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, worked with 9-11 architect Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He's going to be released soon, ladies and gentlemen, 12-23-20, December 23rd, in a little over two years. Court filing last year in a district court argued that Ferris lied in immigration papers and that his terrorist affiliations demonstrated a lack of commitment to the U.S. Constitution. You think? You think maybe? Originally born in Pakistan, Ferris became a citizen in 99. He worked as a truck driver in Ohio and was married to an American woman. Judge Stacy Yanley ruled in favor of Ferris saying that there was not enough evidence to prove that any misrepresentations influenced the decision to grant him citizenship, according to Fox News. She said American citizenship is a precious, is precious, and the government carries a heavy burden of proof when attempting to divest a naturalized citizenship of his citizen of his or her citizenship, she wrote in July eleven. Department of Justice declined to comment. Now, I, I swear I thought, and I have to look this up, I probably should have preparing for this, but I thought the Congress passed a law stripping people's citizenship of their citizenship who expressed allegiance and were convicted of acts of terror against the United States. So, of all the cases we've discussed, I understand that somebody could end up on death row. Are are how many of the people on death row that committed heinous acts of murder, mass murder and otherwise, 
They don't have their citizenship with, removed. Why should we do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Not to those people. Because those are criminals who simply wanted and, and committed heinous acts of murder for whatever purposes, financial, for domestic violence, for drugs, for evil, all of the above. But when somebody joins ISIS and then commits an act of murder against our citizen, this is an act of war. And once we acknowledge that it's an act of war, we acknowledge the core ideology of ISIS, which is they divide the world into the land of Islam, Dar al-Islam, and Dar al-Harb, the land of war. There is nothing more symbolic than saying, you know what, if you join an Islamist cult, a militant Islamist movement like the Brotherhood, or others, and you get convicted of supporting these terror organizations, then you will lose your citizenship because you have obviously violated the oath of that citizenship by declaring war in your ideology. So this is a no-brainer. This begins to then peel the onion of ideological war that we are facing against militant Islamism and will begin to educate not only America, but especially Muslims, about the conflict of allegiance. Why is the nation of Islam called the nation of Islam? It is a separatist movement led by a fascist uh, anti-Semite, Louis Farrakhan, who is a separatist who believes in racial domination, unification of the black community, in his own version of racism, which is a separatist movement. Why did I disagree with Rand Paul's move to try to do away with the na National uh, Selective Service, the draft? You may say that's a different subject, but he wanted to name it under Muhammad Ali's name. And I said, you know what? This is a surrender to one of the core, core central debates in the Muslim community that it begins the path of radicalization, which is do we pledge allegiance to the flag? Do we pledge allegiance to this constitution over any other legal system? Not only because we're a minority that is not an anarchist, that are not anarchists, but because even if we were a majority, this is the best system, the best democracy, the best constitution and bill of rights on the planet, and that we would reject every Islamic state, and we don't want an Islamic state, and it's time to end the Islamic state. Those are all ideas that would never pass muster if the Rand Paul, Muhammad Ali version of Islam was one in which you could say, you know what, I'm not going to go fight a war because my government said so. And if I don't fight that war, it's not only because of policy differences, since I can't fight it, since I can't reject that fighting because of policy differences, I reject it based on saying that my faith wouldn't let me. And yet nobody, even the Supreme Court that ruled in his favor, said that his faith guided him not to fight in that war when in fact you read the details and his version of Islam is not a pacifist one. It's not like Quakers rejecting war. They reject all war. He just didn't want a war declared by Christians, not declared by his faith leaders. That is a separatist movement. That is not somebody who believes in an ideology that is American, 
that is sworn to protect and defend this Constitution, that believes in the rule of law, separation of powers, and the ability of our president, our government, to declare war, and thus its citizens to fight it. And Ram Paul, thankfully, died, wanted to use the name of Muhammad Ali to do that, and thus radicalize more of a generation of Muslims who look at him, oddly, as a hero on that issue. Muhammad Ali had a lot of important things he's done in the past, especially his work against Parkinson's, his work for courage to stand for what he believed in, his his work as an athlete, as a boxer, are amazing. But now, when we talk about the, the front line of citizenship, yes, terrorists should have their citizenship removed. It should send a message that if you declare war on this country and commit an act of war, making it clear that you've pledged allegiance to the black flag, fascist state of ISIS, as you would the fascist state of the Khomeinists, as you would the fascist state of the AKP, then, I know they're a member of NATO and they claim to be a democracy, but Erdogan continues to demonstrate increasing theocratic positions. And his party is a theocratic party that's instituting Sharia law and is imprisoning people day after day by the thousands, professors, journalists, and others that have less freedom now than they've ever had in Turkey. So give me a break. But ultimately... We should be rescinding the citizenship of people that have declared war on this country. It's part of their conviction. You don't get your citizenship and then all of a sudden it no longer can be questioned. We have laws about treason. We have laws that prevent, that protect our society from tyranny and anarchy at the same time. I cannot tell you enough how important this is to the front lines of the battle. Our American Islamic form of democracy is about separating mosque and state, is about believing in the primacy of the U.S. Constitution and freedom and liberty. We can't do that if judges look at an Islamist in the face that committed and contributed to an act of terror who's about to be released from prison and say that he continues to warrant his citizenship. Are you kidding me? This guy declared war on this country. He should have had it removed, rescinded. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. In the last segment this week, I wanted to, if you can bear with me for a few minutes, I want to step back, think out loud, if you will. And I think it really follows well from the conversations we were just having about being tough recognizing that citizenship has meaning, has responsibility, has expectations, recognizing that individuals that commit acts that declare war on this country, the Faisal Husseins, regardless of how psychiatrically ill they might be, are also ideologues of radical militant Islamism and theocracy. 
How long have I been working at this? If you read my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, I've been working in the communities from the few months I lasted at the Muslim Student Association at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at the age of 17 to the years of battle against the Islamists with now my name and picture near the top of the Council on American-Islamic Relations Islamophobia.org website with three or four paragraphs of complete fabricated nonsense written about me, but small price to pay for the battle that we're waging. And you look at the progress we've made. I've talked to you about the growing Muslim reform movement, the volumes of work that have been done from my colleagues, not only my own chapters and articles and testimonies and speeches and large body of work, my father's translation of the Quran, and and uh, we proved the establishment that we're fighting, that the Islamist establishment dominates the vast, vast majority of the mosques who rejected our declaration, but they don't represent Muslims. They represent the active identity movement of Muslims, but the majority of Muslims don't go to mosques. The majority of Muslims are not in America part of identity organizations. They are doctors and lawyers and engineers and publishers and writers and artists and musicians who happen to be Muslim, not Muslims who demand to be Americans, but Americans who happen to be Muslim. And even having said all that, with my other colleagues, Ezra Nomani, an accomplished Wall Street Journal reporter, a author of many books, of many speeches, Rahil Raza, Tawfiq Hamid, all with large platforms. But still, it pales, our work pales in comparison to the achievements of the Islamists, who came on the heels of billions of dollars, who came on the heels of the Saudis of, of Petro-Islam and were handed fertile soil of a community as all communities that circle the wagons when they come in to foreign lands and have now still been sort of possessed by identity politics. Most generations within one or two assimilate and begin to change, but because of the Islamist influence, it has been obstructing and impeding that assimilation process. But yet, the Islamists are not a majority. They may be a plurality, but they're not a majority of the Muslims in America. But yet, that's hard to prove. So, having said all this, my point, I've talked about a lot of this at much more depth in previous podcasts and previous segments. But there's something that... I was struck this week by a particularly pensive moment in the doldrums of 120-degree heat here in Arizona. And you wonder, is this hopeless? Is there no chance of deep reforms? I certainly get told that. I've been told that oh, probably almost every day or a few times a week by folks from the right and from the left who, who say that... Uh, They'd much rather work with peaceful, supposedly democratic Muslim Brotherhood, as Benjamin, Ambassador Benjamin testified, somehow imposing the Islamists as being the leaders of our community. I've also been told, as you know, by 
folks that uh, Islam is one, that the Erdogan version, the Wahhabi version of Islam is the only Islam that I'm fabricating in Islam. Forget the linguistic understanding of the translations of the Quran that I learned and my father wrote that I wrote about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam. Forget all that. That doesn't matter. These are all simply one in a billion. So untrue. So untrue. But is it hopeless? How fast should reform be happening? We have a lot of support. I think one of the most beautiful things about being American is that the vast majority of people I run into and talk to are very positive. They're ready to change on a dime a sense of hopelessness that they had for decade after 9-11 when they hear and see Muslims that are ready to take responsibility to be contrite about the work we have not to need to do yet in the Islamic faith. But in those times of weakness, I have to admit to you, and I do admit this publicly and people ask all the time, but I wanted to talk to you about it. I've never talked about it on this podcast, but I have in speeches, I've even mentioned it on TV a few times, it is frustrating. You do get hopeless and wonder, yeah, you know, I know people thank me behind the scenes, but are they really a majority? Are they going to wake up? You see now people saying the Syrian war is over. Assad won. I tell you, absolutely not. The kinetic parts of it may be, but the war is never over. The revolution did not start in March 2011. The revolution started immediately after Hafez Assad took power. His predecessor took power immediately after the Ba'ath Party took over in 1963. Our families will tell you that. Now, thank God I was blessed with parents that decided, as much as they tried to change the regime in Syria, bring back democracy, it never worked. But they continued to push for freedom. The push will never stop. Maybe underground, maybe uh, the battle will never give up. People of morality, of courage, of honesty, of humility will never give in to fascist dictatorships, especially to theocrats that tell them how to practice their faith. They will never give in. I will never give in. Can I produce for you auditoriums, convention halls, a million-man march of Muslims? Not yet. We need major advertising campaigns showing television ad after television ad of dust bunnies, whatever those things are called, flowing into the streets with no Muslims saying, where are you? Why aren't you marching in America? to push back against the Muslim Brotherhood ideology dominating the community and organizations like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Islamic Society of North America, the Islamic Circle of North America, on and on. Where are you? We need large campaigns like that. We need better polling about ideology to figure out where we are. But I would not be human if I did not, in a moment of weakness, commonly, frequently, admit that this gets lonely. Where are the Muslim voices? This gets pretty dang lonely. What are you afraid of? What's the legacy you're going to leave your kids? 
I know there's folks out there that agree with me, but your silence is deafening. And it can get hopeless. Sometimes you say, geez, you know, I just turned 50. What change? I can measure it. I'm a cup half full kind of guy. But sometimes the cup is half empty. And we have to acknowledge that. And, you know, I think ultimately you can only succeed when you realize where you failed, where you continue to fail, and where we will fail. And we have to continue to fail over and over until success. Where we marginalize the theocrats and the dominant voice among Muslims is one of freedom and liberty, equality, of women's rights, of women's equality, of anti the end of anti-Semitism, the end of the abuse of the uh, treatment in an inferior way of any minorities ends where the original schools of thought of Sharia begin to be marginalized and we begin to develop a new school of thought. That new school of thought is not going to happen in my lifetime. But I do think a revolution, just as many have failed in the Middle East, I think they can succeed A revolution can succeed in the minds of American Muslims. But it has to be about love of America. It has to be about love of liberty and rejection of all Islamic states. Is that happening? It's hard to measure. It's sadly, depressingly hard to measure. But it should be happening. And it's not. But hopefully it will be. I can only hope. Times of weakness will be hopeless. But just like that patient that you love that has a cancer, some survive, most survive, some don't, many don't, but we have to fight, that's all we have, until we have lost every breath in our body. And as long as I'm breathing, I will be here with you week to week. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. God bless, and we'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.